this is going to be an interesting discussion. In recent months, uh, we have seen indigenous groups at the center of some very key development decisions in our country. And we've also seen some of these groups speaking out in favor of these developments, the very developments that others have fought. There are two sides to all of these discussions. And in the simplest terms, uh, you're pitting the resource development against uh, economic opportunity for these groups. Now, a federal judge in a fascinating decision recently ruled that the entire consultation process in this country is biased in favor of the anti-development groups. And in the case that we're going to be talking about here, the center of all of this and the decision that was made, the pro-development indigenous group was shut right out of the process. And it happened right in our backyard. And there are other cases. So to get some insight on this, we're going to chat now with Heather exner Pirro, who is the research advisor to the Indigenous Resource Network and a fellow at McDonald laurier Institute. Heather, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's go through this recent um, ruling. It dealt with a case right here in Alberta, the Muscogee's First Nation, just south of Edmonton. So, so give us the background. What's the lay of the land in terms of what the development was and what the decision was? Right. So this is the coal spur mine, the uh, Vista Phase 2, um, in kind of Western Alberta. I know coal has been a hot topic in Alberta mm-hmm. uh, recently, and this is for a thermal coal project. And it had, there's already a phase one, and there was a, you know, they're expanding to a phase two, I think. And, and anyways, the ermine skin is actually, um, the, the First Nation in, in regard here, the one that, uh, appealed the decision, but they had an impact and benefit agreement signed with Vista. They signed one in 2013 and again in 2019 with the, with the expansion of the phase. But in the meantime, after they had resolved this impact and benefit agreement, which is a very typical strategy where, where industry negotiates with First Nations to kind of compensate for the development that will occur in their territory. And in this case, uh, uh, some, some, some groups that were opposed uh, to the, you know, the expansion of the coal mine, including environmental groups and some in other Indigenous groups, uh, they asked for the federal government to impose, basically, have the federal government look at it. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's just under provincial jurisdiction, sometimes federal. Uh, it, it, what's interesting, and it wasn't in the op-ed, but in, in 2019, they did that, and the impact uh, assessment agency, the federal one, and the minister said that, no, this didn't require, uh, you know, federal oversight, a federal uh, order. And then, and in that case, they did consult with everyone. In 2019, they consulted with 31 different groups, including the Airman Skin, and they decided that no, this didn't need need federal, you know, oversight. A year later, uh, a couple of environmental groups and two indigenous groups, you know, wanted again to say that this should have federal review. Uh, in this case, even though they had, you know, uh, you know, consulted with 31 players, you know, simply the year before, they knew who they had to consult with. They only consulted with these environmental groups and two Indigenous people and totally left out the ermine skin. And so the ermine skin came back and said, you can't do this. We weren't notified. We weren't consulted. Uh, and that's what the judge found, is that, yes, this was wrong. And, and, and also not only, you know, not an oversight, but inexplicable, you know, that, you know, they knew who they needed to consult with, but seemingly just wanted to get rid of coal, only consulted with groups that they knew that wanted to have this designation order. So that's the situation in this case. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the judge basically said this whole process is biased and you can't be picking which groups you consult with. If you're going to consult, you consult. You can't say, we'll consult with people that we agree with and ignore the others, right? Basically, that was said by the judge. Yeah, and that's what, you know, when he said it's inexplicable that they wouldn't consult with the ermine skin. Um, and, you, you know, you, he, the judge, you know, judges are very, you know, straight-laced. He didn't conjecture why the government would or wouldn't do that. But I think it's obvious to all of us the reason they didn't do it is because they wanted to shut down coal. 
And so they didn't consult with everyone, you know, people that might disagree with that decision. Um, and, and, and yes, and I, and I think what it's saying is what's new here is that they're saying there's a duty to consult not only to stop projects, not only what, you know, on the environmental side would impact hunting and gathering, but there's also a duty to consult when you stop economic rights, when you impact the economic and social benefits. Uh, that communities, First Nations, can can gain from resource development. So that's what's new here. Is now we see that the duty consult is going to be applied both ways, and those, not just on the environmental those, side, but on the economic side. And those economic rights and those rights to development, those are protected by treaties that our country has signed with these groups. Right? I mean, there's a legal basis. It's not just that it's the right thing. There's a legal requirement. Yeah. So, and and, and that's where you know the the ministry made the argument that First Nations Treaty and, and Aboriginal rights are restricted to, you know, the hunting, the gathering, the fishing, um, kind of those kind of, you know, traditional. Sure. Uh, and those are very important activities for sure. But in this case, the judge said, no, that's too narrow. You know, let's let's be real here. It's, it's you know, 2021. Um, obviously, there are, you know, they have economic rights that go beyond just hunting and gathering. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Now, this case that we're talking about is one of many, right? I mean, this has happened before. There's other cases we can point to where uh, uh, similar decisions were made and similar groups felt they, they were shut out of the process. So, so now, and now I think it's going to start to happen a lot because now there is some legal precedent for it. So when I think of kind of the more egregious ones in this current Liberal government tenure, um, C-48, the, the tanker ban yep. moratorium on the D.C. West Coast, that was very unilateral, and, and there wasn't consultation. I remember even, um, uh, you know, I was working with some Indigenous groups that were testifying to the Senate, and, and Minister Mark Garneau came out and said that, well, they were representing, you know, private interests, so they weren't as important as the environmental, uh, you know, interests. And I was just dumbfounded by that, just, you know, to think that because you have an economic interest that your, your, you know, your claims aren't important. So a lot of that was done without consultation, certainly without consideration of the lost economic opportunities. Northern Gateway, uh, another great example. The Arctic, uh, one I didn't mention, but the Arctic moratorium. Again, this was done unilaterally. Literally, you know, people in, in Arctic, Kevin, in, in Northwest Territories were given 24 hours notice before uh, Trudeau made a, a big announcement with Obama kind of on his last days to say that they're going to have a moratorium on Arctic drilling. But oil and gas and, and drilling and exploration is a big business, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in the Inubia region. So they were very disappointed in that. Uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, you know, problems that arose out of that. Uh, a lot of uh, felt, you know, people felt betrayed and lack of trust in the federal government. Uh, and then, of course, the wet suet. And this, you know, this, is, this one raises my, my hassle, but... 
Um, we had 20 First Nations along the CGL route, did a, did a lot of work, a lot of negotiations, a lot of consultations in their own communities, the elected chiefs and councils, all signed agreements. Uh, and then, and then of course, there's opposition from hereditary chiefs. And maybe some of that was predictable, some of it was not. But the way that the federal and the BC governments really chose sides and decided to enter into just a tripartite MOU with just the hereditary chiefs on rights and titles, totally excluding the elected chiefs and councils. Uh, and, and now NBC recently has, you know, given, I think, you know, around $8 million to the Office of the Hereditary Chiefs, whereas, you know, for the First Nations LNG Alliance, you know, they can barely, you know, get a few pennies in support for the work that they do. So it just, you know, all these things, all these things add up. And you can see that there is support for Indigenous groups that fit you know, the mold yeah. and are opposed to projects no matter what. And, and, and there's many good reasons for many First Nations to oppose various projects. It's not that everyone supports every single development. But you can see where, you know, where, where, the, where, the, where the government wants to tip the scales, they always tip the scales in, in favor, I think, of the ones that are against um, these things that are considered unpopular. You know, in reading your piece, the thing that I I took away from it was we often hear, well, why don't these Indigenous groups more these First Nations? Why don't they do more for their own people? And and it seems like okay, well, they're they're trying to they're they're trying to explore economic opportunities, and the government isn't even letting them have a seat at the table. It's really an impossible situation. I'm really glad you brought that up because I do a lot of work with First Nations and and people who are business owners and workers, and I don't think the average Canadian understands at all what an uphill battle it is, you know, to work in this industry, to do things, to do things, you know, that they think are best in your communities. It's everything we do incentivizes just sitting and saying nothing and doing nothing because there's so much, you know, pushback when you do try to say things. And I, and I said, I do know of chiefs, you know, who've gotten death threats because they said that they supported a pipeline. And I do know on, on TMX or Line 3 or CGL where they may support it, but it's almost impossible politically to say that out loud, you know. Or, mm. you know um, so, yeah, it, every, all, the, all the things we do in Canada, I don't think people appreciate this, makes it very difficult for people to go get a job in the oil sands or start up a business or run a pipe uh, or sign an impact and benefit agreement. They, we do not understand kind of the social impact that that has on individuals that just the average Canadian does not face just for getting up and going to work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So uh, last one, where do we go from here? Now that this decision has been made, like you said, we've got some legal precedents here. Um, How will this change things? I mean, does it mean that if an Indigenous group wants to be part of the process, they have to be included or they'll still be picking and choosing who gets to to weigh in? Well, I think the the different calculus now that we'll see. So since 2004, 2005, that's when the duty to consult judgment came. And that radically changed the way that industry and government worked with First Nations in resource development. And I think, you know, there's been some, you know, hard times, but mostly for the good. And now we're seeing uh, that, you know, the majority of First Nations, we actually did a poll, 65% of uh, Indigenous people support resource development. But when they benefit, you know, so don't come in and and just take everything and don't provide any jobs or revenues, but include them in the process. And I think we all understand that's there. So, that, but a lot of, you know, I guess anti-development groups, if you want to describe them that way, have used this duty to consult basically as a legal strategy. Knowing that on anything, let's take TMX, for example, if you can get some Indigenous opposition, you can delay, defer, make, make all these projects more expensive, more risky, um, and, and, and often they just result that they're not going to go through. And, and so we've seen how... Indigenous groups have been weaponized, in a sense. Indigenous rights have been weaponized to be able to say no to these developments. 
And now I think we're going to start seeing some balancing there. That by the same token, you can use Indigenous support and Indigenous economic rights to say, no, you have a high hurdle to say no to this development if the Indigenous groups approve it on their territory. Which only makes sense, Heather. For goodness sake, uh, it seems to be absolute common sense. I really appreciate it. I think this is an important issue, and uh, thank you for your piece and for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is Heather Exner Perot, who is a research advisor to the Indigenous Resource Network and a fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute.